Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a lecturer, a climate corruption reporter and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Max Isle. Max is a fellow at Ghent University researching the climate and agrarian issues. He's also the author of the book, A People's Green New Deal. Max joined me to talk about land, the importance of land, of land reform, of political relationships to land in the global south, how the global south relationship to land impacts the global north. He explains how liberation is found in agrarian reform when people are awarded back their land in order to feed themselves and their family and to create a cohesion for communities. This is essentially post-colonial planning. And Max explains that the reason to not give people back their lands, the reason to not sort of encourage a peasant class, and he explains the use of the word peasant in the episode, but the reason to not afford people their lands is that capitalism needs a surplus of labor. And a surplus of labor helps maintain this global system of inequality and inequity that is driving the climate crisis and sees billions of people all around the world driven into poverty or refused an escape from poverty even though we have more than enough resources to go around. This is a phenomenally interesting episode. Max talks about counter-revolutions, he talks about agrarian reform and policy over the decades. He gives lots of different examples from countries all over the world that have attempted or are currently attempting agrarian reform and ultimately frames it all within the globalization project. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. By signing up, you'll also get access to the weekly article I write inspired by each interview. Thank you to everyone who has signed up and is supporting the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who keep the project going every week. Max, great to have you on the show. I'm so excited for what we're going to talk about today. Thank you so much for scheduling this. Oh, my pleasure. So I whizzed through your um the the work that you sent me and I've been aware of your work for a while, but for listeners, could you give sort of a whistle stop tour of your career and your research thus far? Yes. I work on the role of agriculture uh in development and underdevelopment on a world scale. In particular, I work on the role of the agrarian question or the role of agriculture and peasants in the Arab region and especially uh, North Africa and within North Africa, Tunisia during the national liberation struggle and during thinking about post-colonial planning through successive iterations and stages. And more recently, I have been researching green transitions and green new deals and uh, heterodox alternatives to the more mainstream green new deals, as well as the role of agriculture and peasants, uh, both in the third world, but also uh, farmers in the first world in a possible just green transition. Gosh, there's so much to (laughs) go on there. Um, 
the first thing that I want to jump into, actually, um, and this is going completely non-chronologically, so please bear with me, but that word peasants and your research on them, I'd really love to get stuck into that because I think certainly from what I'm seeing on some people, their vision of a green transition definitely involves maintaining a peasant class, but calling them stewards, for example. Um, and I suppose, what does your research say about um, that political relationship um, in a green transition um, and also the political relationship, well, I suppose now, um, of how peasants live even still in sort of today's modern world, even though we have so many resources to go around? Right. So uh, the, the technical answer to that is, of course, that the peasant class uh, typically referred to smallholders producing primarily for subsistence with uh, an element of production for the market. Now, when we use peasant more colloquially, especially within agrarian studies, but also uh, within the South, where the, the term doesn't come freighted with the same uh, connotations and even denotations as it comes within the North, where you use word campesino, or you use uh, it's not coming with the same kind of very complicated people are like, are you referring to serfs? Are you referring to uh, people mm. living under a brutal feudal land? Or like, no, we're just talking about people who in one way or another are making a living from the land on a relative basis. So in that sense, uh, a, a green transition is premised uh, on what we consider a read to develop or escape from underdevelopment. That is, the, the term uh, can't be thought outside of how we think it's possible for places in the third world to develop, that is, to achieve a decent level of uh, access to all the things that one could plausibly understand as the baseline for a decent life for the, uh, across the entirety of the population. Uh, and then in the first world, it takes on uh, the developed world, for the term, takes on a different inflection where it's about uh, putting in place a sustainable pattern of interaction or, again, to be a technical metabolism between uh, human production, human societies, and the non-human environment. And in, in both cases, of course, that metabolism, that interaction is heavily mediated by farmers peasants, people involved in agriculture, because agriculture in its very many forms uh, is the, a kind of blanket or membrane that covers most of the world's uh, habitat surface, right? It is the overwhelming method by which humans are interacting with non-human nature. And therefore, it's very important from a ecological sustainability perspective. From a developmental perspective, the reason the peasant class is so critical in the countries of the South is that the basic problem of the countries of the South is how are you going to get resources that you can invest in improving uh, your infrastructure and your productive force? That is, you decide you need machine tools. You decide you need factories. You decide you want to be producing your own clothing. You decide you want to be producing your own furniture and so forth, right? Uh, there's also things that you won't be able to produce, but you need to import, whether in the short, medium, or long term, electronics or cars or uh, engineer uh, the engineering tools for high-speed rail and so forth, right? You need capital for that. Where is capital going to come from in a poor country? You can take a debt, but you can take on debt from the IMF, the World Bank, 
or the United States and Europe. And we see how this is growing, right? There's actually, I think, a, a 35% increase in the burden of debt repayments. Ghana just uh, over the last uh, year and a half because of the increases in interest rates uh, and because there was extensive borrowing over the last year, during, over the last decade because of uh, low interest rates. Uh, Ghana just defaulted on its debt. Uh, Tunisia is... Uh, Basically, uh, has been had had its credit recurrently downrated, which means it's ever more expensive to get debt, and they're not even clear how they're going to uh, re- uh, finance their next uh, their next debt payments um, and continue to finance the, the budget and so forth. Right. So there's actually a capital constraint on development, which is not the way we think about development in the north. Sometimes in the north, people will say, "Oh, well, you know, we don't have money in the budget for health." But anyone with sense knows that that is, in fact, nonsense, right? We know, always know it's a political choice, right? Uh, we know very well that there is, in fact, resources available for things like, if you're, for, if you're an American, things like universal health care, right? There are resources available for such things. It's that the state is making a political choice not to invest in such resources, right? And, um, you know, the decision to start to gut the National Health Service in the UK or the decision to progressively privatize um, to previously public health services and put ever more of the burden on the working class uh, across Europe, right? And a lot of Europe anyway. These are all political choices. These aren't really, although the, the rhetoric is due to, is the, the rhetoric claims that this is a problem of resource constraints. In reality, you just need a little uh, financial economic awareness to understand that there's not a resource constraint. In the South, the issue is very different. Right? In the South, you know, the place like Tunisia does not have uh, enough resources to be importing cereals and machine tools and uh, food oils and so forth, right? So, and so, sorry, Max, when you when you say resources here, you mean capital? I mean capital. Yeah, it does not have enough capital. Yeah. It doesn't have enough financial resources, capital, to be financing all of its needs, which is why it has a balance of payments crisis, right? It has debt outflows. Uh, debt pay, uh, interest on the debt, outflowing capital. And then it also is needing to uh, purchase ever more things that are ever more expensive on world markets. And there's literally not enough, um, there does not seem to be enough capital in the country to do so, absent uh, very large, politically difficult taxes on on uh, the wealth holders in Tunisia. And even that probably, I, I very much doubt it would be sufficient, right? Um, so that there's a fundamental capital constraint on development, which means you need to be thinking seriously, how are you going to get capital for development? Uh, and how are you going to lift people out of poverty at the same time? Okay, well, uh, we know how to do it, really. We know that, for example, if you take, you look at agriculture, this is without getting to the ecological question, although it's inseparable from that. We know, for example, that small farmers are massively more productive per unit of land than large, mm. than large farmers, right? This is very well known. It's extremely well established. And the reason is not something that's great from a humane perspective. It's often because uh, small farmers are willing to work harder on the land, right? Nevertheless, if you, uh, in a country like Tunisia, but also many, many other uh, post-colonial countries, if the issue is that you have an excess of labor, uh, right? If that's your fundamental uh, kind of... Uh, factor imbalance that you have a huge amount of labor available, which is the case in across Latin America, across Africa, uh, across West Asia, across Africa, across huge portions of uh, 
yeah, south south and to a lesser extent East Asia, right? You have unemployment rates between 15 and 45%, right? So you actually have capacity to uh, mobilize labor and apply it to land. And the best way to do that is to carry out an agrarian reform. It's to actually increase the size of the units of land available to the poorest people, um, which right now could be one or two or three hectares in a place like Tunisia, whereas you need a minimum of 10 just for uh, self-provision for a small family, right, in the, in the more uh, temperate areas. This is just an example using the country I know best, right? So automatically, you would increase national production and you would increase uh, the well-being of the poorest sectors of your population, right? So this is actually a developmental imperative. Therefore, if this is a developmental imperative with without uh, the question of ecology, it, uh, unless there's some overriding ecological reason to say we shouldn't be doing that, then it should be an overriding developmental imperative in any form of green transition. Now, luckily, uh, in a lot of, in many marginal lands uh, in, the, in the third world, uh, and also non-marginal lands, you can radically increase yields using very sustainable farming methods, right? Using uh, relatively fewer amounts of inputs. And this is a technology called agroecology. It's actually just an elaboration of the technical uh, logic and an elaboration of the intellectual basis underpinning the technical logic of so-called traditional farming. It's actually just low input farm, right? Um, on, a, on a microeconomic level, you actually get uh, increased uh, revenues on a farm level. Um, on an ecological level, you get much better ecological outcomes. You get better biodiversity outcomes uh, because self-evidently you are not using pesticides. Uh, you get uh, better soil health. You get uh, increased earthworms. You get increased, vastly increased uh, soil organic matter. It basically, uh, uh, massively increased soil carbon right? You decrease erosion. You also get uh, crops that are more resilient to drought, that are more resilient to flood, that bounce back quicker uh, to soil that bounces back quicker after hurricanes and that you're able to crop it more immediately. Uh, it means it's less vulnerable to mudslides. It's less vulnerable to blights and uh, various pests and so forth, right? So from an ecological perspective, uh, this is also, uh, it's a win-win. In, to use uh, this phrase, right? So therefore, it needs to be centralized in any form of uh, green transition. Um, and it is actually, unfortunately, very much absent from a lot of the ecological discussion that is happening, uh, not only in the global north, but to some extent in the global south as well, insofar as the north is able to set the pace and agenda of the discussion. And why do you think it is absent from most of these discussions and plans? It, it, it's absent because people are not accustomed to thinking about where they get their food, essentially. And people are not accustomed to thinking about developmental needs of people who don't look like themselves. So... Intellectually speaking, you have people generally are in northern universities or northern financial institutions or to a lesser extent, northern developmental institutions, right? 
uh, who are able to set the agenda implicitly or explicitly for Northern green thinking. And to that extent, it's very uh, organic to have a huge blind spot when it comes to the developmental needs of the poor, of the periphery, of the third world, right? This is a huge part of it. It also, it, it's not just a blindness that is uh, reflecting uh, spatial or geographical location, right? I mean, everybody inevitably has blindnesses when it comes to what we can and can't see. Um, it also, in fact, uh, it, it reflects uh, it reflects a power dynamic, right? The, the, the poorest people in the world actually play a fundamental role in stabilizing the system we live in, right? If you want to control wages on a world scale, then you need neighbor reserves. You need a reserve army of labor. This is very well established, right? I mean, this is uh, the Federal Reserve optimum. Like, why is it optimum that people are unemployed, right? It's crazy, right? Um, now, the, the, the labor reserves function differently in the South and in the North. In the North, uh, with the exception maybe of the European periphery and so forth, who are, have four, five, six, seven, eight percent unemployment. In the South, unemployment is massive and systemic, right? Unemployment and underemployment is 50, 20, 25, 30, 45, 50. As far as this could be 70 percent. We can say it's a special case, but actually, I think it crystallizes the problems of the system. Um, uh, unemployment, and that means, okay, you have a, you have a constant downwards p- pressure on wages, which means that the labor share of consumption on a world scale is constantly suppressed and is able to be suppressed by the existence of these massive labor reservoirs. Now, it's not like people in the North, even progressive people are like, well, I want to preserve uh, you know, the structural imbalance of the world economic system. And therefore, I want to preserve labor reservoirs. Therefore, I'm not going to see agriculture. That's not how ideology works, right? Ideology is a way we make sense of uh, factual or empirical uh, and historical terrain that we see in front of us. It's like, oh, ideology, that makes sense. That's how the landscape works. That's how things work. Um, and therefore, I look over there and I don't, uh, I'm looking at what development, underdevelopment, ecology, and so forth. I just don't see agriculture. I just don't see peasants. Now, this isn't valid, right? But it's an organic element of the reproduction of the world. If you just don't see the problem, that's really at the root of all the other problems, then it's natural that it it has a stabilizing effect on the system if you can't address the problem at its very root, right? You can't say, where is the root? I don't even see the root. I don't even see that problem. Therefore, it isn't addressed. Therefore, uh, you you end up in a, in a pro-systemic or stabilizing role. Therefore, it's an organic fact to not see uh, the, the need for small peasant-led development uh, on a world scale, right? And this is why... Uh, we, we, I can elaborate on some cases where this has happened and what the, the way people have reacted to it uh, in recent times and historically. Mm-hmm. This is actually a very uh, modern phenomenon. If you go to uh, the development discussions in the 50s and 60s, the third world was agrarian. Everybody agreed universally. You need an agrarian reform in order to develop. And even in the first world, with the advent of like modernization theory and so forth, right? The Alliance for Progress in Latin America, uh, pro-middle farmer agrarian reforms in in various countries of the world, top-down agrarian reforms in in allied occupied, you know, U.S. occupied uh, East Asia and so forth. It was actually understood that agrarian reform would have a uh, progressive role in uh, 
contributing uh, surplus for industrialization and actually improving the development of the society in one form or another, even if those agrarian forms were not anything I myself approve of from a, a radical or, and people-centered perspective, right? That was very much on the agenda. Then it got off the agenda, right? Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a more historical question that we don't need to delve into right now as to why it got off the agenda. But the fact that it's off the agenda is actually leads to the uh, stabilization of the underdevelopment of most of the world and also the effective blocking of just of paths for just ecologically sustainable development in the poorer parts of the world system. I would be interested to understand a little bit more why it went off the agenda. I think that's quite important context, especially when we're dealing with things changing so quickly and, you know, shifting baseline syndrome. Uh, the fact that everybody thinks that whatever's been normal for the past five years tends to be the norm for forever. Uh, do you know why it was taken off the agenda? Uh, the way anything good is ever taken off, off the agenda on a world scale, which is counter-revolution. Right. Um, it, it's counter revolution on a world scale and counter revolution within countries themselves. So when you know you look at what happened in Brazil with the Jao Goulart government was putting so was uh, supporting the peasant leagues in Brazil in the early 1960s, and then there was a savage military coup, and uh, thousands of people or tens of thousands of people I don't know how many were were killed, imprisoned, sent into exile, and so forth, including a lot of the radical intelligentsia. Therefore, you don't have a discussion of a land to the peasant agrarian reform. Easy, right? Uh, same thing in uh, Chile, right? Once you uh, have uh, murdered Salvador Allende, right? And uh, thrown people into prison, thrown uh, people, assassinated people in their homes. Or if you're in uh, Argentina and you've, uh, you're the military dictatorship and you put concrete blocks around people's feet, you're also funded heavily by the U.S. to do so. Uh, spread fascism across the southern cone. Uh, and then they don't talk about agrarian reform. If they're a little more, they get a little bit more organized, like in uh, Nicaragua, then you finance a uh, U.S. proxy army to actually erase people from existence. And you carry out uh, basically a savage war of aggression against them in order to uh, stop the, uh, the in, in order to try and freeze their process of uh, changing the distribution of power in their society. You turn the country to a basket case, right? Uh, you impose uh, all sorts of sanctions on it. Then when the country kind of, uh, when even the progressive wing of the country becomes more and more, uh, uh, you know, develops more and more uh, internal problems and corruptions and so forth, you say, oh, wow, these people are really great. And then suddenly you're talking about corruption instead of agrarian reform, right? And the U.S. role and the NATO role, stymieing agrarian, right? Same thing in Syria. Syria was carrying out a radical land to tiller agrarian reform through 1966, 1967. I mean, the, the Ba'athists were fusing with Marxist-Leninist ideology and uh, the intelligentsia and the political leadership was heavily influenced by the Chinese revolution and Maoism. Then they were hammered by Israel. And then suddenly the, the project of both resisting Israel and also carrying out a domestic agrarian redistribution taken off the agenda. Now, uh, and, and then you have a kind of stabilization of, of a middle peasant past. But because, why? Why was it? Now, it was on the agenda because uh, it was basically a given of the post-colonial governments across, uh, the, uh, across the entire post-colonial world. Their legitimacy rested on actually delivering something to the mass. This is what Fanon said. What did Fanon say? Fanon said, what do the people want? They want land and bread. 
right? Or they want land as a means to get bread, right? This was elemental, right? People wanted access to land. It was it was the fundamental aspect of support for the anti-colonial national liberation struggles across the entire periphery that people would have the right to uh, land and national development that the land would uh, both contribute to and be a and therefore uh, would be a component of right and it was the same in uh, latin america especially with the cuban revolution suddenly it was understood that you could actually change the existing structure uh, radically change the existing structure of landed property right now um, uh, you know, w- with the rollback of all of these attempts, and then, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, the, the Chinese turn away from uh, peasant-led growth, you start, they, they were a kind of, you could think of them as kind of this kind of like reactor that was radiating this idea of an alternative way of structuring the uh, domestic, inter- uh, domestic order, the domestic class structure of other societies. So it was constantly putting on the agenda. Now, what you saw from 1990, I mean, agrarian reform popped off the agenda, right? It was totally off the agenda uh, all over the world, right? You didn't really have it anymore uh, being discussed uh, until uh, Zimbabwe, right? Until Zimbabwe. Um, and you had certain uh, elements of it in, Brazil, in uh, Brazil, for example. And you also had, of course, guerrilla armies advocating for it in uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia, right? But um, what happens to people like that? Of course, the guerrilla armies are being murdered by uh, the U.S., right? Or by U.S. Uh, U.S. subcontractors, essentially. And if you look at Zimbabwe, then Zimbabwe carries out a radical land to reform where they uh, use a minimal amount of GMO seeds for that matter, right? And uh, they're placed under a vicious economic sanctions for taking land from wealthy white settlers and giving it uh, to poor black people. Uh, and so... If every time it happens, one finds uh, you're like, well, this agrarian reform, um, you know, doesn't quite meet my democratic standards for what is an appropriate agrarian reform, right? Uh, let alone, you know, if Venezuela is placed under, you know, a destabilization attempt um, and, uh, you know, peasant cadres are constantly being assassinated internally, even during the more radical uh, Chavez years, then of course, uh, you know, agrarian reform is going to fall off the agenda of the South. Agrarian reform is not so much on the agenda of the South. It is naturally, organically not going to be on the agenda of the North, where people are very far from uh, the zone of storms, where people can actually effectively demand, uh, where people feel it in their daily lives. Do they need to demand a change in the distribution of power in the society in order to have decent lives? So it, it's organic in a sense, that it would be uh, off the agenda in the North. Um, but nevertheless, what, what is organic is not to say that it's inevitable, right? I mean, I think it's also coming back into attention in the last five, six, seven, eight years for a variety of reasons, but mm-hmm. uh, one can never uh, insist on it. Say we were to, say agrarian reform was to roll out in the global side. Um, is there a danger that the global north could use the global south's self-development um and like contain sort of sustainable societies where a a people is fed uh because they are a member of the peasant class and everybody has access to land and therefore like the sort of industrial development of those nations would contract um or it would certainly decelerate 
is there an, is there a danger that the global north could then sort of steal the 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 carbon budgets um and cement that that power um hierarchy of the north being sort of the dominant bullying players and the south being subject to their rule for a far longer time it's a huge it's a huge danger it's a danger on multiple levels this is why the the classic discussion about agrarian reform was always organically interwoven with a discussion of national sovereign industrialization, right? It was not a question of emphasizing agriculture to the expense of industry, but it was rather a question of putting agriculture on the agenda in situations where uh, the default, uh, especially in the 1950s and the 1960s amongst uh, amongst people who were anti-agrarian reform, they were often claiming that in fact, industry by itself could provide a sufficient impetus to develop. Rather, what, what's very important, and you see it in all the attempts uh, with all their blights of uh, radical nationalist construction, be it Zimbabwe, Bolivia, Venezuela, uh, it, you know, not always very effectively recently, but industrialization has always been part of the agenda, right? A sovereign industrialization, meaning uh, attempts to uh, basically build at home what you have a history of importing, uh, doing out- added value-added processes domestically and so forth, right? So, uh, of course, it's a, it's a huge danger. And this is also th- this question of, I think one can see the danger kind of uh, uh, presented usually in a bad faith way when people are like, oh, you're fetishizing agriculture, you're fetishizing peasants, you want everyone to live like leprechauns and habits in the shires of the south and so forth. Like no, in fact, we do need to insist on sovereign industrialization as a, a ineluctable component of a national sovereign development project. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we can say uh, agriculture and agrarian reform in the South are unimportant, or that, for that matter, that the U.S. and uh, Western governments uh, have considered it unimportant. Quite the opposite, right? The, the places and social formations that they place under the most aggressive siege in the third world are those that put the agrarian question at the center, either discursively or in their actual practice, right? Uh, the agrarian question, both in its question of the liberation, uh, the, the changing of the domestic agrarian structure uh, purely internally, or those that are putting the agrarian question on the agenda in terms of the national uh, control of land uh, as it, it can be achieved against monopoly capital and proxies like Israel. Palestine. Is people talk about a part, they talk about it. It's fine. Actually, Palestine is a agrarian question. Who controls the land, right? How are you going to get land to Palestinian uh, peasants and slum dwellers unless uh, the situation has been decolonized, right? This is an agrarian question. But of course, also an agrarian question in South Africa, right? And there's also an agrarian question in uh, that is be actually seeing some advances in uh, Zimbabwe. There's also a huge agrarian question in the Philippines, which is exporting nurses uh, from their own national budget, their own national education budget. They train these nurses to a very high level. Then they export them to the United States. The United States doesn't have to use its resources to train nurses, right? It's actually an extraction of wealth. Now, that is uh, inseparable from the fact that those nurses cannot achieve a high enough wage. Why can't they achieve a high enough wage in the Philippines? Well, this is because there's systemic wage suppression. What is it? central element of the systemic wage suppression in the Philippines is the fact that you have massive labor reservoirs. Why do you have massive labor reservoirs? 
is because you have a massively unequal agrarian structure. Why do you have a massively unequal agrarian structure? Because the main forces that are actually contesting it, which is historically the Communist Party in an armed insurgency, is actually being murdered every single day, practically, in the Philippines hinterlands. How widely is that known amongst progressive people in the United States and Western Europe? Very, 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 very little, right? Which is not to play a blame mm-hmm. game, right? It's to say that we need to understand uh, that with all the lights and shadows, what are these forces that are actually trying to change the world and appreciate that uh, everybody has a role to play and some of the role to play is saying, okay, we need to make sure that these people over there in their way, trying to change their situation and their world is part of also changing our world in a progressive way. And if we can't see them, we got to change our glasses. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's sort of a, an almost deliberate suppression of uh, progressivism happening in other parts of the world because the, the the global north, even the progressives in the global north, want to be at the forefront of the changes. Um, we want to be the 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 I don't know the angels of progressivism or push the world into a new future when in fact there are lots of fantastic sort of projects and stories and events and attempts happening everywhere and they need more attention and they need more support the the solutions are not going to be found in the global north that is for sure absolutely and and you saw a little comic book uh, that recently came out i don't know if you've heard of it it's by uh, this uh, very blind swedish fellow andreas malm um, who uh, talked about blowing up pipelines uh, of course we can pause and talks about what blowing up what pipelines oh pipelines sorry <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah okay you may have heard of this of this um, this uh, this little comic book that came out uh, i think a year or two ago uh, I mean, first of all, let us discuss that if you actually blow up a pipeline, you actually create a lot of uh, environmental damage. This is one problem of uh, blowing up pipelines. Another problem is, of course, that historically the central force that actually has been throttling uh, the production of oil in target states, be they Iran, uh, historically Iraq from uh, through uh, 1972, uh, Venezuela and so forth, uh, is the U.S. government. But, uh, you know, Another thing you can't see from uh, Switzerland or wherever, one of these um, Arctic places up there in the north. Um, But uh, put that to the side, right? Uh, You know, who is, um, you know, who is the protagonist when you're talking about blowing up pipelines? You're talking about northerners blowing up pipelines. Actually, you know, I was just uh, doing an interview with uh, Ndango Sambasila, the leading uh, Senegalese or West African development economist. He was talking about how Senegal is now uh, looking forward to having more oil reserves available, right? You know, the, the idea of blowing up pipelines, I mean, uh, the, these countries which like Senegal, which are not responsible at all for global warming, uh, at all, um, and which need to develop, want to mobilize their oil reserves, not blow up their pipeline, but mobilize their oil reserves for their sovereign development, needs, right? Um, if you don't want them to do that, well, then get them capital grants. Right. Struggle for that. Yeah. Um, but don't be talking about blowing up their pipelines. Now, these are uh, the, you know, the, the argument that the central uh, modality for climate change in the global north should be uh, blowing up pipelines rather than opening pipelines of cash to the global south. is something you can only dream up. The Arctic. Yeah. It's a very silly idea. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I- I know what you mean, but I think there uh, there's a big question mark um, over what 
what industrialization or development even looks like in a green transition. I think it is so hard for people to imagine. I certainly struggle to imagine like what if if if, if a country was to bypass its uh, oil and gas industrialization and and say capital was to, we were to open pipelines of capital instead, which of course is sort of the hope for um the oh what's it called there's a loss and damage fund and then there's another COP uh, twenty six fund which has been chronically underfunded. Like, what does that look like for people? Um, how can we have a green transition that also really amplifies development and a kind of, I don't know, a renewable industrialization? Because from what I see, most of the talks about a green transition focus on trying to substitute the fossil fuel economy for a renewable one, which isn't possible. Um, but then also, as I said before, kind of demanding that like a billion people will be, or two billion people will be land stewards and that's it and that's what they and their children will have to be in order to protect the land from the resource grabbing global north that hasn't been able to get its appetite in check right uh, you know the uh, honestly i haven't i haven't seen this rhetoric of land stewards so i'd be happy to know where i i can see it but i mean i i, I definitely understand what, what you're talking about i'm just interested in seeing the specific places where it's discussed um, you know, we we have to look at it from both directions. I mean, on the one hand, uh, this is a plausible path for sovereign development uh, in the South. Uh, on the other hand, as you, I 100% agree with what you are pointing out, is that there's this sense that the people in the South will be like uh, the conservators and the implementers of natural climate solutions and carbon farming and so forth, um, and maybe could be uh, poorly paid uh, biodiversity stewards or guardians or uh, keepers of the keys and so forth in vast swaths of the global south. And this will be their new role, their new role uh, as the low paid kind of uh, social reproducers of uh, the non human nature. So this is, what, this is why we really need to keep the, the macro view in mind. The macro question, the big question for uh, the south is their right to determine their path of sovereign development. Right. Which, of course, we want to be ecological. Of course, they want to be ecological. But uh, because there's a massive uh, ecological crisis endogenous to the South, right? I mean, there is the appropriation of commons for notwithstanding, not even uh, even for solar parts, right? It's happening in uh, India, for example. It's been extensively written about. Uh, there's questions of where you cite windmills, major issue. Um, in uh, in southern Mexico has that vast distributional consequences, right? Where are you going to site a windmill? You know, if you site a windmill mm. on people's agricultural land, you're actually uh, effectuating a land grab and that energy is going towards often uh, export-oriented industrialization. Uh, so it, it can, without paying attention to the larger developmental framework and also, in fact, the right of countries to articulate a sovereign developmental path for themselves or preferably confederated that is linked together on a regional level, then you aren't going to, any of these uh, ways of framing it uh, is going to end up uh, redounding to the benefit of uh, international and that is northern monopoly capital, which is exactly the case for these two called uh, natural climate solutions, right? So this is why these questions of biodiversity conservation, these questions of seeding carbon into the soil, these questions of preserving forests, right, um, need to be articulated with this question of development, but also need to be articulated uh, accordingly with this question of political rights, right? Political rights both on the micro level, but political rights also on the national level, and then the respect for the political rights, which then becomes uh, an international 
So there is a fellow, um, Forrest Fleischman, who's been doing very, very good work about uh, the attempted reforestation plans for South Asia. And he says, when these are imposed from above, they make no sense at all. They tend not to lead to any successes. But uh, in South Asia... Why is that? Well, they they tend to just be throwing forest seeds for trees everywhere, basically, and then they count them as as a carbon credit, basically. So it's usually, it's often ecologically appropriate places. There often are in, uh, is an articulation of, you know, what role does a forest play in uh, local economic development, right? That's a serious right. question. In fact, a forest can play a very serious role in uh, local economic development. Right? A forest can provide both whatever grows on the trees themselves. It can provide lumber if it's logged sustainably, um, it, it, it's possible it can provide fuel, although it's not necessarily the preferred way uh, it can uh, to be securing fuel for warmth and energy and so forth, right? Now, the point is that forests uh, can provide much that's usable for human beings, uh, provided that there is, again, a macro framework for how we understand the social use of forests, right? And this is why we can't, if you just think of forests as these big uh, carbon vaults um, that we should just be throwing everywhere. The, and the more of them you have, the more carbon faults you have. You, you don't end up with an effective way of thinking about ecological preservation. And this is why all the yeah. good work, um, including really uh, a central facet of uh, what's called the indigenous question, uh, which is uh, has problems in this framing, to be sure, I think. But uh, the, a lot of the indigenous question, and this really tends to be uh, sidelined in too much of the mainstream uh, fetishization of the indigenous question is the indigenous question is about land rights, right? The indigenous question is a political question about control over the land. Therefore, if there's political yeah. control over the land, not just the land uh, that people have, but also the land that they have uh, a treaty right to, and also the land that they were bullied into surrendering via coercive treaties and so forth, right? Um, and also maybe the land that they uh, would like a right to in Palestine or uh, West Papua or uh, the Western Sahara, for example, right? Yeah. If you have a political framework for the protection of your land, which includes the land that is forested, uh, then you actually have a political framework for... Uh, not subordinating uh, bi- biodiversity protection to uh, national development, but yeah. integrating yeah. Uh, yeah. forest preservation and biodiversity protection with a specific vision or constituting a vision of national development, which is contingent on political rights that then require political force, that is political power yeah. to protect and that political power comes both locally, but also comes from uh, the withdrawal of threats against that political, uh, the, the defense of that political power. It means a transformative obligation is not just cheering for people in the South. Although, yes, I cheer for uh, Palestinians, but it's also saying, OK, there is a coercion being applied to these people's right to exercise political yeah. self-determination yeah. over their own lands, territories, uh, and political futures. I need to withdraw from that uh, coercive process, which means contesting the government that is doing and uh, carrying out the coercion. Yeah, absolutely. But how, and how does this all relate back to 
globalization because it would seem to me that uh, capitalism, even though sort of it, you know, one of the great myths is that it fosters in- innovation, it seems to punish heterogeneous societies because a heterogeneous society would, I would imagine, like demand more of a, an active and visible uh, police or security service. Um, whereas the whole illusion of capitalism um, depends on this idea that everybody is free and yet to and for them to self-police it's this theory of precarity and I suppose self-policing or in, in, the encouragement of self-policing um, is much easier when everybody in a society looks the same and that is why they would attempt to grab not just grab resources in terms of uh, resources that can then be put on the, the national market or the international market but also in a bid to minimize the, the, the differences between, between members of their society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think there is a a push towards uh, homogenization and uh, punishment to some extent of uh, heterogeneity, but we also see, you know, a Western recuperation of all forms of, of many varieties of, heterogeneity, that is a recuperation, that is a kind of uh, scrutinizing it, taking certain elements from it, depoliticizing them, and then presenting it uh, in a depoliticized way. And so, I, you know, I don't think it's the countries that, per se, that are mm. heterogeneous, that are are being punished, or that there's a flattening. I mean, you know, the, this idea of globalization is, uh, you know, the globalization, my, my advisor, Phil McMichael, used to call it the globalization threat, right, rather than globalizations. Because we've always been global, right? Um, Civilizations, there's always been articulated uh, links between uh, various forms of production and consumption, whether uh, more marginal or more centralized, right? So the the question is not, I think, just um, this this globalization. It's kind of like, is globalization, when globalization is, uh, the the specific vectors of globalization are, for example, monopoly capital. When uh, McDonald's is trying to homogenize uh, diets and consumption in not only in the global north, but also in the global south. And it also needs uh, to homogenize supply chains because this process of rationalization, this process of uniformization is trying to supply uniform inputs and produce uniform outputs. And of course, this implies a violence to uh, human beings and uh, their their distinct lives and their distinct cultures by nature of the, the violence imposed um, by the, the needs, the uniform, uniformizing and quantifying needs of a monopoly capital on a world scale, right? So in this sense, the, the heterogeneity is being uh, flattened out, right? But I, I think we need to pay uh, close attention to, you know, the the way it's articulated with uh, industrial, especially industrialization um, and commodification. Mm-hmm. It's the industrial industrialization that uh, needs uniformity, right? Because in fact, uh, in, in its right, nature, okay. it's inattentive to uh, biological mm. we've talked a lot then about what um the the politics of the global south does the global north also need agrarian reform yes uh, there is uh, there's uh, there's several facets of uh, agrarian reform that need to be paid attention to i'm gonna i can talk about best about the united states cases although mm-hmm. i think a, a recent book came out uh, about the land question in uh Great Britain showing that the amount of agrarian concentration is uh, simply massive, right? Um, so maybe one of the more unequal northern uh, agrarian structures on the planet. In, in the United States, I mean, you see uh, Ted Turner, maybe we 
listeners won't know the name that darn uh but also uh, uh but also bill gates it's just a old wealthy dude um uh bill gates <laughs> who is definitely well known right he is now i think the largest or the second largest private landholder yeah he is in the united states right um so we see that the super wealthy are actually grabbing hard assets, not only to uh, maintain the existing grand structure, but also to expand it. Now, uh, people definitely don't want to talk about a grand in, in the United States, uh, it, even though the, the concentration and the, the very uh, the racially implicated and the colonially implicated uh, concentration of land in the United States has been getting very, very uh, ever more acute, right? And, and so we do need a uh, grand reform uh, on multiple levels. I mean, first of all, we, I think I always try to point out the decolonization, right? That is the removal of the aspects of the settler dynamics or what's called land back in the United States, right? Now, the, it's not a clear map what that looks like. But to support it in principle is to support a change in the agrarian structure of uh, the landmass, which I support. Um, when we talk about changing political rights uh, and defending treaty rights, we're really, in a sense, talking about a form of agrarian reform, right? It's framed in the common discourse, and there's a, the, 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 the language is correct to talk about decolonization, but decolonization is about land, right? Uh, which is... Uh, often not uh, public enough or not loud enough, I think, in, in the discourse. Um, if you look at the most radical uh, Black movements in the United States, they have very often, and, and the ones that have been the most punished by the U.S. government, right? They have very often talked about self-determination and um, uh, land reform and uh, land uh, uh, forms of production based on agrarian Black nationalism, right? This has a very long uh, genealogy in radical black thinking. Sandy Hamer and Malcolm X talked about it. They talked about land as being absolutely central both to the constitution of political communities, but also the constitution of of economic production, right? Where people produce for what they need. Um, It's not a coincidence, I think, that the rate of the percentage of black farmers over the last century has gone from something like 17% to like one or 2% of uh, farmers are black now. You see a very racialized aspect to the process of agrarian change and agrarian competition. You also, uh, you know, if you want people, if you want a society in which people are able to actually uh, steward the land in an effective way and make a good living, then you need to break up, you need to make farms, uh, you need to break up the, the large farms, essentially, and carry out a radical mm. So it's absolutely essential. And I think it would be ever more essential in a place like the United States as the U.S. would become less reliant on commodity crops from the South, which it now imports at will, basically, right? And it also mm. imports a great deal of commodity crops, for example, from Baja California, um, that is Mexico, uh, is very reliant on crops from there, um, in part because of north-south power dynamics and relations. Uh, if you want people to actually be stewards and uh, husband people of the land in the United States, then you need a plot of land that is on a human scale rather than something that's a thousand hectares and only available on 
only usable by the application of uh, massive uh, technological inputs that exceed any capacity for a kind of uh, regulation of the of those inputs use according to the ecological or biological cycles needed on the land itself. Mm. And I suppose then the question would be the same. How how can we, as my sort of last question, what kind of political reforms can we use alongside agrarian reform to ensure that we don't recreate a kind of serfdom whereby perhaps most people are working on the land and able, therefore, to feed themselves, but they are also producing a surplus, um, which is then going to an, an elite class to be put on a globalized market and uh, to be exchanged for capital. Right. Well, this is why, I mean, uh, this is why when we talk about agrarian farm, we always come back to what is the social logic that is mm. governing the society. I mean, this is why uh, if you want to, when you talk about agrarian reform, you should also talk about anti-capitalism, right? You should also talk about imperialism. Yeah. We should talk about commodification. We should talk about the uh, ability, uh, a social system in which some people are able uh, to appropriate the fruits of the labor of other people uh, in using coercive power, right? Which is actually the fundamental issue of capitalism. Um, so when we talk about agrarian reform, we also need to talk about all of those other things, which means that, of course, you want a revolutionary change in places like the United States and the United Kingdom. I, I certainly do. Uh, and I think that's worth fighting for because uh, you don't want to reproduce these dynamics of inequality and exclusion and alienation and exploitation and depression. Uh, one wants a society without those things, which means not merely fighting for uh, programs that are just within an unjust social order, but also understanding what is the pattern logic of the social order, namely capitalism, that keeps on reproducing uh, all of these mechanisms of uh, oppression, part and parcel of reproducing itself. Mm. Right, okay. Max, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. I can't wait to go away and read more about with everything that you've cited. Uh, my final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Can I name three people or can I only name one though? Please. Ah, okay. I would recommend platforming Lisa Tilly, Archana Pesad, and Keston Perry. Fantastic. Max, thank you so much for your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. Yes, thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Max's work, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly essays inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the show and make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.